In our last episode, we talked about an over, a broad overview of the confessions. We talked about the Canons of Dort, but also the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg. Uh, one of the things that we kind of breezed over is the content of the Canons of Dort. That's uh, a pretty some pretty important doctrines, but we kind of talked about how they're a little bit more in the background uh, in our in our church confessions. So today we are going to go through them in a little bit more depth. Uh, Chris, where would you like to start? Well, I'd just like to start with um, a quote from from the Book of Jonah, when Jonah is in the belly of the whale and he prays. And he ends his prayer by saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. And uh, if you want to understand the Reformed doctrines of election and predestination, um, they really are, in a way, an exposition of that verse, which is a verse that gets, um, you know, gets repeated in the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a sentiment that runs from start to finish of the scriptures, which is that, Salvation belongs to God, right? It's not in our hands, it's in God's hands. And as you think about the doc like election and predestination and these these, you know, these words like this, I think it's really important one just to to understand that election and predestination, those are words that re- relate directly to the doctrines of grace. They're not meant to be uh, you know, they're not sort of speculative things about, you know, God choosing and rejecting and things, but they they really are related to um, grace. And last, uh, in the last uh, episode, we talked about I characterized Dort as like the operating system um, for our doctrines of grace. And and what I meant by that is that you know it's it's a really uh, you know we um, you know if you pick up your phone and you start scrolling through and tapping on apps like you are you are dealing with uh, the interface, um, but behind that interface is a whole lot of code that normal people cannot make heads or tails of. Um, and, and this is what we mean by the background. It's, it's not that the doctrines of grace are in the background, like we don't talk about them, but um, you know, when it comes to election and predestination and all these really complex questions about God's will and decrees and human freedom and all these things, they get really technical really quickly um, to the point at which it's, it, it gets, you know, you can, really be led astray. And so I, I want to emphasize that a little bit, um, that that really we're talking about the operating system. I'm going to pull back, you know, I'm going to pull back the the, uh, the interface a little bit. I'm going to give you a little picture of the operating system, but we're not going to go uh, into too much depth there. Um, but I really want to, I, I really, I really want you to remind you that these, um, it's about grace. And it's really about grace from God's perspective. And, you know, when we think about grace, we sometimes think about it just from our own experience, right? And what happens and how we become Christians or saved. But election and predestination are themes that are woven through the scriptures and come back. And again, it's it's always, it's a, the perspective of God saving action from his perspective rather than ours. And so we're really answering this question, what does it mean for us to affirm this truth that scripture says from start to finish, which is God saves sinners. God's the one who saves sinners. Um, Dort is a, a very complex answer to this question. So, Chris, we talked about a little bit in the last episode. This was written in like 1617, something like that. What, what was, 
life like before Dort? I mean, were the did did the Synod of Dort just make these up? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think there's often, especially for those people who are outside of the Reformed faith and maybe not as familiar with um, uh, the Christian tradition, to think that, you know, John Calvin invented the doctrines of election, and which is just simply not true. Um, they are biblical, right? I mean, that, you know, Paul and Jesus taught them, right? Uh, but but more more specifically within the Christian tradition, they you know you have the first full kind of full articulation of teachings of grace in in a, in a figure like Augustine of Hippo, and really Augustine um, you see in his own life um, really encounters and begins to formulate and reflect on election and predestination when he's wrestling with Paul and reading and trying to understand Paul. And of course, Augustine is one of the most important figures in the in the Western uh, Christian tradition, and and informs all the Middle Ages. And so, uh, Augustine's teachings on election and grace get picked up in the medieval scholastic tradition by figures like um, Thomas Aquinas. Now, there's a number of different kinds of election, and and I'm not trying to argue that Augustine and Aquinas affirm everything that Dort does. They actually don't. Um, but the general, they both would affirm um, this one main point related to uh, um, unconditional election, which we'll come back to. Um, but I think it's 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 a misrepresentation to think that somehow Calvin um, kind of came up with this and the Reformed are some, you know, kind of this eccentric group of people. Um, it's simply not the case. So when we talk about the five points of Calvinism, maybe it's... It's not really the five points of Calvinism. It's it's five points of doctrine that have been woven throughout the Christian tradition, but were summarized here uh, in the Canons of Dort. Is this is this TULIP? Yeah, this is what we call TULIP, right? So it's an acronym that captures the five points. And I just want to state them up front here, and then I want to go back and we can talk about them. Uh, but, you know, TULIP is total depravity, unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, what's interesting is if you actually read the canons, that's not how they're organized. They don't start with the T. Um, they don't start, you know, and in fact, there's only, um, the, the only uh, point that actually maps onto TULIP is the final one, which is the P. Um, but it's arranged very differently. Um, Tulip was really kind of a teaching tool for for kind of doing this, but I actually think it it act you know it actually distorts um, a number of things, and so I'm not going to follow the Tulip um, sort of progression here. It's a helpful mnemonic, but not really uh, helpful when it actually comes to understanding the the canons themselves. Um, but I, I do want to I want to make a a word of I'll call it a caveat or word of caution. Um, just as far as when we talk about the doctrines of election, um, I think you see, and you see this in in Dort, and you see it in the Westminster Confession as well when it talks about election. And you see it in somebody like Martin Luther when he talks about election, which he does quite a bit. Is they always warn of of caution, of being of of respecting the mystery of God and His His will, and 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 not being too speculative, and by speculative, I mean, you know, there's a lot of times there's questions, natural questions that we have about 
how God works and does things, to which there's no clear biblical answer. Uh, the scriptures are silent. That's not to say there's not an answer, or, but speculation is when we move past scripture and we have some kind of logical system and that we force the scriptures into it, kind of like a Procrustean bed, right? Like there's an image in Greek uh, mythology of Procrustius that gets, doesn't fit the bed, so you have to cut off his limbs in order to make him fit. And I think that's sometimes a temptation when we're talking about theology and systems of theology is to kind of make scripture kind of fit our system. And there's a huge temptation when it comes to the, you know, doctrines of election. So, you know, I think a lot of times people, um, when they first find the Reformed tradition and doctrines of grace and they embrace it, it's, it's really exciting and liberating in some ways because you have this high view of grace but sometimes it becomes an all-consuming kind of thing and, and goes way overboard where we're speculating about the elect and the non-elect and all this stuff. And, and really the scriptures don't allow us to do that in quite the way that I think a lot of you know, Reformed people unfortunately do. So what point do you want to start on if we start with these points of tulip? Or... Well, the first point is actually we'll start with where the, the canons start, which is with uh, the you which is unconditional election. Um, this is the first main point. And um, I think it's important to start here because um, part of the point of election, and, um, which is, is, is it emphasizes God's glory in saving, right? That, um, you know, it's not as if when human beings sinned and fall that God was taken off guard and all of a sudden he's, he's scrambling for plan B. There's a, there's a mysterious sense in which God, from the foundations of the world, is saving and electing, and he's glorified. And the verse that really comes to mind, I think, that captures this is, is the beginning of Ephesians, right? Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians, and I, I just want to read a few lines for you, because this really, I think, captures the heart and essence in the positive sense of unconditional election. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So there you have... Um, you know, this emphasis, which is God loved us from eternity, from the foundations of the world, that he chose us, he predestined us in him according to the purpose of his will. So, and 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 then Paul follows up to this, like, overwhelming uh, truth to, to the praise and glory, to his praise and glorious grace, right? That, that, that this is, you know, demonstrates God's glory. Um, he goes down, skipping down a couple of verses here, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope among Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So there again, the emphasis is on God's glory, God's plan and will, um, and the beauty of, of his salvation um, in Jesus Christ. So rather than election being a response to a problem at the beginning, it actually uh, reveals the glory 
um, and intentionality and the greatness of God and his control and, and direction of the world. So one, one of the things that's, that's interesting in, in those verses, um, it says that God chose us in Christ um, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So um, not that we were holy and blameless or not that uh, God chose us because we were holy and blameless. Um, so, so talk a little bit about, yeah, what that means, um, the unconditional part of that. Right. So there's an dis- important distinction. Um, now, even if you reject the Reformed teachings on grace, you can't reject um, election language because it's everywhere in the Bible, right? Um, so part of it is, well, what's, what does it mean to be elect, right? And so there's, there's a distinction between conditional and unconditional election, right? So uh, unconditional election um, is the reform view, and, but, you know, it's helpful to understand it in the light of what is conditional election. Conditional election is that the idea that God chooses us, um, you know, because he sees faith, right? So, so in a way, uh, God's, God's election of human beings is conditioned by their response of faith to him, right? Uh, so, you know, it's like this idea, I think I've heard it often explained from the Arminian perspective, um, you know, God, election is basically foreknowledge, right? God foreknows those who will choose him, those who will respond in faith to him, um, and those are the elect. But again, you know, so it's conditional though, right? So it's, it's me choosing God or me, you know, uh, kind of being inclined to God. And that becomes the basis by which um, God then counts me as his elect. So God is kind of reacting to us. Right. And I think what the unconditional election position in view says is that, you know, and this goes back to, um, to the Ephesians passage, which is from before the foundation of the world, <laughs> right? Long before we were even sort of had existence and the possibility of choosing or looking at God, God elected us. He chose us in Jesus Christ. And so there's a kind of, um, yeah, we, we didn't choose God. God chose us. And the reason we, cho- the reason we choose God or respond in faith is because God chose us, right? Um, so that, that's just an important distinction. Um, you know, and this, again, repeats what Jesus said. Yeah, Jesus says to his disciples, you know, you didn't choose me, I chose you, you know, and it appointed you to bear fruit. Um, and so, again, it's the action lay with on God's side, right, um, when it comes to uh, the definitiveness of our salvation. Again, we're going to talk a little bit later about how God engages our own agency in salvation. But th- that first point is so key because it says God. God's the primary actor. Um, he's the first mover. He's the one who makes it happen. Um, and I think this is a really important point. I mean, one of, if I could just raise an objection um, that I hear a lot, and, and it's a really, it's a, it, it's an, you know, it's a natural one, right? Like, so I think a lot of times um, people hear that word elect and they hear, uh, oh, you guys think you're special. No, you're God's elect, right? And, um, you know, almost as if, you know, and, and sometimes Reformed people use this language of election. They talk about, you know, the elect in a way that, like, they're special and set apart. Somehow they have some kind of inherent uh, spirit, superiority, spiritually speaking. That's often how people hear that language. Um, but it's actually the complete and exact opposite, right? 
if you um, don't affirm unconditional election, some, you know, what at the end of the day, when it comes to this question of, well, why did God elect you and not another person? <clears throat> it's it's really hard to get around um, the question, the fact that somehow there was something in you, you know, like you had some spark of faith, some interest in God that, you know, however small and minuscule it might have been, allowed you to turn and respond. And God, you know, God saves you, right? Um, but the the Reformed teaching of unconditional election says, no, like there's absolutely nothing in you. Like you are part of the same mass of fallen and lost humanity. There is nothing special in you morally. Um, but God in his graciousness, for mysterious reasons we don't understand, called you out and brought you to life. And you can claim nothing whatsoever for yourself. And so that's, I think, a really important uh, aspect of, of the teaching of unconditional election. And that, that goes all the way back to, to Israel, right? Deuteronomy 7, uh, God says to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and shows you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers. So it's not God's love is set on Israel, not because uh, they are somehow better or, or different than the other nations, just because the Lord loves them. Right. And if you know the history of Israel, you know, like, you know, they, uh, and this this language gets picked up in Peter, First Peter too, where he talks about God's elect, um, and like what marks you out as God's elect is you become an object of mercy, right? What distinguishes you? I mean, and to become an object of mercy is not like, you know, like you, you're like a special case, like you you were like a special case of of somebody who has fallen, and broken, and uh, you know rebellious in God you know, had mercy upon you and set you in his household and saved you, right? I mean, you can't claim and brag about this on your own. I mean, you're an object of mercy. You're like a dog in the pound, right? Like that nobody wants. And God comes through and he sees you and it says, I want this dog as part of my household, right? I mean, that's what election is in its, its essence. So there's there's no way that we can take a kind of moral pride or you know, like see ourselves as better as the elect, which is why, you know, I think reform people need to be careful on how they use that language of when they talk about God's elect, because the way our culture hears it is like, oh, you're special, you're set apart, you're, you're morally superior, but actually the biblical, true biblical understanding is no, like you're morally inferior. One of the things that I hear sometimes uh, is when people encounter this doctrine of election, um, they these are Christians, um, but they start to worry that they are not elect um, because they hear, you know, it, it was, it's not a choice that you make. And that, that kind of destroys their confidence because before they could say, Hey, I made this choice. And now they're saying, Oh, well, it's not about that choice. It's about God's election. What if I'm not elect? Yeah, no. And this is definitely something I, I sometimes hear. And, and here's where I think, Another example of a kind of culture of Calvinism that's gone amok, where it becomes really speculative. And usually when this is happening, um, people are kind of tend to think about God's election as these like abstract, abstract decrees. 
that are somehow separated, mysterious, inscrutable behind the veil of history. And so some are elect and some are not elect. And But again, the Bible never uh, uses this kind of language, like somehow there's a randomness in God and it's like, saved, damned, saved, damned. I want you. I don't want you. Like, that's just, again, this is what I mean by speculation. Um, no, where Paul says you are elect in Jesus Christ, right? Or when 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 the Old Testament talks about election, you know, it's identified with the historic nation of Israel, right? And so when people ask me, you know, like, I don't know if I'm elect. I'm like, well, do you believe in Jesus? They're like, yes. I mean, do you come to church? Do you worship? Do you desire to follow him? Well, yes. I'm like, well, then you're God's elect. I mean, why? I mean, you know, like we tend to want to separate and, you know, and this is again, like the decrees and the, the God's desire from the means of grace and the realities that he gives, right? Election is in Jesus Christ, right? You can't separate from. So if you're in Jesus Christ and you you experience that, um, you know, you are God's elect and you should not doubt, right? Um, if you're looking to Jesus, you know, that's, you know, usually the people who are worried about their election are the very, are the last people that should be worried about it, right? Um, so, so yeah, that that's one, I mean, again, um, one of the kind of malformed aspects of the culture of, of Calvinism sometimes. That does remind me um, of actually what what the canons say. So there's in Article 15, it does talk about people who don't receive the election, and and this is what it says about them: the person who doesn't receive God's grace either does not care at all about these spiritual things and is satisfied with himself in his condition, or else, in self assurance, foolishly boasts about having something that he lacks. So. The people, like you just said, the people who are really concerned about this, who desire to be saved, uh, these are people who don't need to worry so much. So uh, that brings us to the second point, right, which is um, of the canon, moving along here. So we, we discuss unconditional grace, but the second point in the way that Dort um, deals with it is is um, what's called the L, or um, limited atonement. Um Again, that is a, a problematic uh, label for this point. Um, it's also called definite atonement or particular atonement. But the, the focus of the second point has to do with the, the centrality in uh, the meaning of Christ's death for our salvation. And so, again, I want to step back and just make a, a big observation about the progression of the canons, right? So it starts with God's glory and electing. It goes next to Jesus, the glory of God saving in the cross. And um, this question of the of a particular atonement or definite atonement, um, it answers this question, um, did Jesus's death um, accomplish salvation um, in actuality or just the possibility of salvation, right? Um, and <clears throat> what, what the focus of this um, point really gets at is that Christ's death is particular, it's personal, it's real, it's powerful, it's for you. Like for you, Jesus has you in mind, right? Um, it's not just the possibility or a hypothetical reality, but it is personal and it is effective. Um, I think maybe an illustration to kind of help, right? Like so if you think about, you know, we've been in this pandemic for, you know, two years plus, right? And now we have all these vac vaccines that are help, help, 
supposed to help us not get sick, right? Uh, you know, I've been vaccinated, um, but I've also been infected, <laughs> right, with COVID. Um, a mild infection, but nevertheless, the vaccine um, didn't protect me fully from getting uh, sick. There was a breakthrough. There was a breakthrough sort of infection, right? And if you think about the death of Christ, I think sometimes when we think about the death of Christ, we're like a vaccination, a vaccination that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't work, right? So some people look at Jesus and, you know, like he's he's able to save them and, you know, they look to the cross. And others are like, yeah, you know, it's just, it doesn't work for me. And, you know, the whole idea of death and atonement is this idea that, you know what, um, for the elect, for those who God has chosen, uh, this, Jesus' death is like a vaccination with, a, with 100% effects, effectiveness. There's like no breakthrough infection possibility with the death of Jesus, right? Um, and I think this gets negatively stated, you know, when we call it limited atonement, it's negatively stated as, you know, Jesus only died for the elect. Um, and, uh, while there's a certain sense, this is true. It, it actually distorts, I think the main idea here, um, which is, um, that Christ's death, it's, it is sufficient for the sins of the whole world, right? Like you don't have to like, again, take that verse from, from Timothy, where it talks about, you know, God desires all to come to salvation and say, well, it doesn't really mean that God desires, right? Um, but the distinction that's off, that's made in the canons and by theologians is that that uh, the death of Christ is sufficient for the sins of the whole world, but efficient or effective um, only for the elect. And again, this is one of those points that is, you know, I think for uh, people who you know embrace the canons of Dora, this is probably the one point um, that people struggle with the most, and it is one of the points that really is more a function of the logic of the doctrines of grace rather than, I mean, there is definitely explicit biblical texts that refer to this, um, but I always like to be very cautious on this point and not go too far um, and emphasize the positive piece here, which is that Jesus really took our place on the cross um, and personally atoned for my sins. And this isn't just a possibility, but it's, it's a reality. And that there's no sense in which his death for me can fail to accomplish its work. I think effectiveness is a really important word to use when we talk about this. And, and I think it's actually illustrated really well by the, the canon themselves. The, one of the things they do is consider this alternative. Like, could Christ have died and not saved anyone? And, and I think, like, instinctually, we're like, well, no, that, that wouldn't make any sense. But if we say that, you know, Christ's death wasn't 100% effective, that there's still some uh, something in you or me that we have to do in order to, uh, to accomplish that salvation, well, then if nobody did that, then Christ really would have died for nobody, which, which just doesn't make a lot of sense. No, that's a great point. <clears throat> So, and again, I mean, the, the, the idea here is that, you know, you know, Jesus didn't die in vain, right? And, and it, you know, again, the effectiveness of his death for, for those who are God's elect is, is 100%, right? Now, again, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult teaching that we ought, we ought to approach with a lot of mystery and care. And, and, I, and here's a point, too, where, you know, you won't find me preaching on limited atonement. 
because the scriptures don't speak of it in in quite as explicit a terms here, right? But it but it nevertheless there's a really important function here for the whole coherency of the doctrines of grace. So we've got unconditional election, and then we have uh, definite atonement or limited atonement, and then we have two points that are combined together, points three and four, which is uh, total depravity and irresistible grace, right? So these are, and the canons are treated together. Um, and once you kind of see the points and what they are, you kind of understand why. And here we're now shifting our focus away from uh, God's activity, or at least um, it, or we're, we're not to kind of the human condition and reality, right? And then how God responds to that. So, uh, you know, first, I think it's helpful to understand what the Dort means by total depravity. And very simply, it's, it's, um, it's captured by Paul's language of being spiritually dead in our sins, right? That, that we are dead, we have no capacity to turn to God, to desire God. Um, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, you know, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Even when we were dead, and yet, right, he's shifting to grace here, even when we were dead in our sins, our trespasses, we are made alive together with Christ by his grace. So there is this very strong sense with um, the teaching on total depravity that, um, yeah, we are completely and totally and utterly helpless. We're like a corpse before God. There's nothing in us that desires God, that wants to turn to God, that is alive to God. And so that's that idea of total depravity. So when I hear total depravity, sometimes um, I think of people that I know who aren't Christians, and um, they're not always the most evil people, right? I mean, some, sometimes there's a lot of good in them. I, I like a lot of them. Um, so how do we square that with total depravity? Yeah, that's a great question and a really important one. Because again, here's a, a point at which Reformed doctrine is often mishandled and misunderstood, even by those who believe it. Um, total depravity, and I always like to use this, this distinction, total depravity is uh, an extensive category, not an intensive category. And what I mean by extensive is that um, it refers directly and explicitly to um, um, the human condition, right? In, in our spiritual state before God, right? So to say that we're totally uh, depraved means that there's no part of me as a human being that has any capacities to turn to God. It's total, right? And it's helpful to understand in the medieval tradition and even with the Arminian debate, there was, you know, like, um, room for some of the some theologians to say, well, you know, the will is fallen, uh, but the mind, or you know, there's still some capacity in our reasons to to understand, and there's a there's a contact point between us and God, right? And so, what the reformers in their affirmation and and here, uh, Luther and Calvin are in complete agreement um, that there's nothing in me uh, that is alive, can be alive to God. It's total. My heart, my mind, my body, my will is dead. Right. Uh, so this is what's meant by extensive, um, contrast that though with intensive, right? I think the language of piety in the reform tradition 
And I think this is, goes especially strong in the Puritans and even some of our hymnody. Um, there's <laughs> often speaks of the human being as like, you know, you're a worthless, no good, you know, yellow belly. What you're just like, it's, it's, it's understood in a kind of intensive term to mean like you're completely rotten and worthless and disgusting. Um, and there's nothing good in you at all. Right. And Paul does use the language, right? Like in Romans three, where he talks in pretty rhetorical terms, quoting the Psalms. Um, but it's never to say that it's, it always has to do in reference to our relationship with God, um, our spiritual capacities. Um, Calvin and the tradition, um, even as they affirm the total depravity of human beings before God, do not deny that human beings are capable of doing good, of, of their, they don't, being totally depraved doesn't mean you cease to be an image bearer with worth and dignity. Uh, these are really important things to understand because, you know, uh, our public life in a, in a pluralistic society depends upon us getting along and talking about morals and virtues beyond just a confessional belief in God. Um, so, yeah, you, I mean, by God's common grace and spirit, you know, people um, are able to do good. You know, they're, they're able to understand truth and, but, but it's always in a limited sense. These are, it's goodness that never le can lead to salvation. It's an understanding of truth in the world that doesn't ever become like uh, a step on which we get ourselves to God, right? And so that's, that's just a really important distinction, I think, to, to have in mind when you think about um, how to understand this doctrine of total depravity. So it's important that for this doctrine that we understand that we cannot... Um, earn God's favor, but it's not, we're not trying to say that uh, there's nothing good about people or that we are, humanity are just wretched, wretched people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. <clears throat> so, so you have total depravity, right? Uh, but then the, the combination here with the points is with what's, you know, in the tulip category is understood as irresistible grace. Um, now, I, I think, again, this word irresistible grace is, is kind of a misleading category for understanding um, the nature of grace at this point, right? Because, you know, you get the sense of, um, you know, I think of irresistible grace, I think when my kids were little and they were two or three and they didn't want to get dressed. And I, uh, you know, literally, like, and this is bad, this is what impatient father, right? Where I, like, literally put my elbow on their chin or their 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 chest and hold them down. I'm like forcing pants on them and they're just writhing and screaming. Right. Um, or my wife, she just never did. She was always able to coax them into getting dressed, but it took about 15 minutes. But in my impatience, I would force them. You know, I think that's the image we often have of irresistible grace. It's like, you know, God is just going to, I'm going to, he's going to chase me down and he's going to give me a divine zap and I'm running away. That's just not, that's a kind of a, again, a, uh, not a good picture of what, the nature of grace is here because irresistible grace here too, it has to do with uh, God's, you know, a couple other better words for this is uh, uh, regeneration uh, or effectual call. And here we're talking about gra how grace works from the inside out, how God, and, and it, this, this article of all the articles really draws into focus the work of the spirit. Right. And here, I just want to draw attention to the Trinitarian aspect of the, of the canons, right? Really the first article or the first canon deals with God's election, the, the father, his, his, his calling or his decrees. The second one about 
the sun and his death and its efficaciousness. And, and this point four here really with, with effectual call or regeneration, we're looking at, this is the work of the spirit in a deep way in, uh, in my heart, right? Well, so again, that word, uh, effectual is, is important because it's related to efficacious or effective, right? So when God calls, like, you know, we have a new dog, a puppy, right? And this dog does not respond often, right? I call, I call, and, and often she won't look, right? Um, that's how we are spiritually when we're, we can't turn to God. It's like God's calling, God's calling, uh, but we just don't respond or we ignore it. But an effectual call is like, like we call and we hear and we turn, right? And what that presumes, though, that God has done something in me, right? It's not all of a sudden I've woken up. It's just that God has regenerated my heart such that I can hear and respond. He gives me the desire. He turns towards me and regenerates my heart. So this is what we mean by irresistible grace. And where where is that in Scripture? Like, is that something that we see pretty plainly taught? Yeah. I think I mean, well, you have a lot of it in Paul in his discussion of the Spirit and also the Gospel of John. But I, I mean, I think the most... Um, striking images is really from the book of Ezekiel in that famous passage about the dry bones, right? So, you know, God comes to Ezekiel and, and he, he tells him, you know, uh, prophesy, right? Son of man, can these bones live? And the bones uh, in Ezekiel, in that passage, uh, Ezekiel 37, represent kind of the spiritual state of Israel in exile, right? They've been disobedient. And as a nation, they seem like they're dead. Not, not just dead. They they've decomposed and the bones are bleached. Exactly. Right. And so God speaks to, to Ezekiel and he says, son of man, can these bone lives? And Ezekiel says, well, I, Oh Lord, you, you know, and then God says, prophesy over these bones, say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And, I mean, this is just a beautiful picture of the way that God, I mean, it's a it's a wonderful passage about resurrection, right? But it's also a wonderful passage about the nature of the Spirit, because the word breath there, ruach in Hebrew, is the same word that's translated spirit, right? So, so God speaks a word, and there's breath that enlivens, takes these decomposing bones and starts putting sinews and flesh and skin and hair and brings them to life, right? And so that, that's what a factual call is. That's what regeneration is, is that God, he, he speaks to us in a way that makes alive. Just like, you know, when he, you remember when Lazarus is in the grave and he's dead and buried and everybody's like, he's, he started decomposing, don't open it up, Right. And Jesus, he speaks, he says, Lazarus, come out, right? And Lazarus just comes alive at the word of Jesus. Um, so that is the picture of, of, um, of regeneration and effectual call that kind of fits under this, this title of, um, of irresistible grace. And so it seems to me like this really works pretty closely with the idea of definite atonement, because... If God is going to kind of guarantee that his work is effective, 
Um, he needs to send his spirit into us to make us come alive. He can't depend on us. He needs to really depend on himself. Yeah. And so related to that definite atonement piece, the, the spirit is is that aspect of the divine being or the divine person that makes the death of Jesus effective in us, right? So again, it doesn't depend upon us, um, like closing the gap, but from start to finish, right? Like salvation belongs to the Lord from start to finish. I mean, that is in a nutshell, again, what the doctrines of grace are all about. Where's, where's our choice in this? That is, uh, I think, one of the things that people often, again, another objection here. And I think this this uh, point is really important place to deal with it. Um, and again, like, um, you know, you have these passages, you know, throughout the scriptures where it talks about God, you know, kind of turning people to him. You know, think of the preaching of Paul when he was uh, in, in the book of Acts. It says that, you know, Lydia, you know, God opened Lydia's heart, you know, to Paul's preaching. Right. So. There's a clear sense that God is acting in her in order that she becomes receptive to um, to Paul's preaching. Now, I mean, some people might say, well, this this still like where is their true human freedom? Right. And, you know, the big difference and it's an important theological debate and it's not easy. um, But the big objection that the Arminian tradition and many um, within that context, um, which would include many Roman Catholics, too, is like, well, this cannot make room for genuine human freedom, right? There's no true human freedom. You're just a spiritual robot. And uh, I mean, this is a really important objection to grapple with. And I think the first thing I want to say is that the Reformed tradition by no means denies human freedom. Now, the question is, how do you define freedom? And what does it mean to be free? I mean, is freedom simply my my ability and capacity to do whatever I, I want without any... Per- any, you know, restrictions or limitations? Or is freedom more, um, I think, as the scriptures understand it, and classical philosophy for that matter, is that freedom is my capacity to act according to my nature. And going back to the total depravity piece, and this goes all the way back to Augustine and Martin Luther picks it up, which is this sense that um, in our fallenness, our wills are bound. There's a bondage of the will. Like, I'm not free. Like, I'm free to do all kinds of things. Like, I can choose where I want to eat for lunch. I can choose who I want to marry. I can choose whether, you know, like, I'll respond in anger uh, to the guy who cuts me off or whether I'll just be patient. But where I'm not free is that I'm not free um, to simply turn to God. And I'm not free not to sin, (laughs) right? Like, Like, I can do anything I want. And, and within, you know, the limits of my, my sort of physical nature and personality. Um, but bondage of the will means I, I am not free to turn to God because I'm not free not to sin. I'm sort of bound in sin. And so when it comes to this question of freedom, and I'm probably going in too much detail here, um, the Reformed tradition does not deny the reality of freedom. Um, but it recognizes that the, the severe limits that freedom have been imposed on freedom because of our sinfulness, our depravity. But when it comes to our redemption um, and our own agency, uh, a verse that I really love that I think captures, again, the paradox and the mystery. And again, I want to I remind you that the relationship between human freedom and God's decrees or God's election is a mystery, right? Like you can't think of them on the same plane, right? It's, it's not 
it's not a zero sum game by which I mean that the more uh, free I, be, I am, the less free God is, or it's not like, a, it's not a game of tug of war, right? Like, and that's how we often think about the spiritual life is like, like tug of war, like God's on one end and I'm on the other end. And, you know, if I give, then God gets, and if God, you know, you know, let's go, then I get what I want. It's not like that at all. We're talking about God is God and I'm a human. I'm a creature. He is uncreated. Um, but the verse I love is from Philippians 2 that I think captures the paradox of freedom and God's grace. Um, Paul says, he says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if we stop right there, and there was nothing else that came after this, this is a very strong affirmation of human freedom and responsibility and obligation to engage salvation. And you could even interpret this as a kind of like, wait, I contribute to my salvation. But Paul goes on and says this, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, so what you have here is what philosophers call compatibilism, or there's a sense in which, you know, God say, so we can still affirm in a full-throated, unapologetic way that God saves from start to finish. God is, but what Paul is saying here is that um, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You engage God and respond to his call and experience that. Um, but God saves, but he doesn't save without us, right? God is in, you know, he's regenerating my will and he's illuminating my mind. And so there's a sense in which this is completely penetrates and informs all of my experience and agency but God is working in and through my own will, right? Again, it's, um, he works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, again, this is that language of being born again, right? Um, regeneration, that God does something in me that completely transforms my agency as a human being and turns me to him such that I understand him, I know him, I desire him. And, it's, and this is what it means to be truly free to be able to turn towards God and to live according to what it means to be an image bearer in Jesus Christ. So I think another thing that I hear sometimes when people are talking about this um, election and, and how really salvation belongs to God, right? It almost becomes like, well, everything about salvation is just something that happens to me. It's not something that is even really involves me. Uh, and what I hear you saying is, you know, you said God doesn't save me without me. Um, and like my life experience, what, you know, my personal devotion, all of that is part of God saving me. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, again, salvation is not a divine zap. You know, it's not like God looks, oh, you know looks over history and is elect and is like saved, right? Zap. And all of a sudden I'm just like, well, you know, it's all done. No, I mean, when you think about what's falling in us and, and what's falling in the world, it's, it's sort of comprehensive, right? And and so salvation has to be comprehensive. Like it has to, it, you know, again, think about the Shema, right? The great commandment in, in Deuteronomy 6. You know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all, you know, your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. Like, loving God 
is not just something we do with our minds or with our emotions or with our bodies. It's something we do with our whole person. And salvation, and this is where, again, the work of the Holy Spirit is so important. Um, salvation is, in, in real time, <laughs> is the Holy Spirit just applying Jesus to all those aspects of our life, getting into all the nooks and crannies and redeeming that. And it's, again, it's like, think of that imagery from, from, from Ezekiel 37 and the dry bones. And you just like, the process of sanctification over the course of our life is, is sort of like the Lord laying, oh, I'm going to give you some ligaments and some sinews and some flesh and some, and now some skin. And, you know, like to, to where you get to the end of the Christian life, which is, pers- you know, like glorification, then we are fully formed, right? But, but this is all part of the Holy Spirit and the work of God in us, kind of making us into the person of Jesus Christ. So let's talk a little bit about that last point. I think uh, you often refer to it as once saved, always saved. Is that right? I never said that. <laughs> that is how some people like to think about it. How would you how would you talk about it? Well, the fifth point here is called the perseverance of the saints, right? And um, yeah, this this is that that point that that you know, there's this old evangelical debate. You know, it's like you know, can you lose your salvation, right? And um, you know, the perseverance of the saint it affirms like no, the elect cannot lose their salvation, right? Again, you just think about the. I mean, again, there's a logical aspect to this, right, of how all these things fit together. Now, and, and like I said, logic is important, right, coherency, but it's not the ultimate thing, right? Um, but it doesn't make sense that if God, like, starts my salvation completely and totally um, without me, in a sense, like, my own efforts and works, why would then God abandon the, pro- the project midway through, right? And so, like, God completes right? He completes the job. He brings it to fruition, right? Um, You know, he doesn't stop midway and say, okay, I got you going. I want you to finish it. And so I think that's a really, um, a really important, this is a really important verse related to assurance, right? So, and this comes back to that many people who, um, who come and ask, like, I'm not sure I'm elect. Um, you know, there's a lot of different reasons that people do this. But I, I think a lot of times the reason, the deeper reasons um, have to do with just like, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with my with sin, like a persistent sin in my life that doesn't seem to be going away. And it makes me wonder whether I really, I truly believe or I feel like I'm, I'm distant from God. Like I don't feel the presence of God close to me like I used to. Or... Um, I feel overwhelmed by suffering and like I, and I, and it's just this, this deep sense where I don't like, I I don't feel like I'm, I'm being saved right at all these different levels. And this is, this is a point that really draws us back to our assurance, um, our assurance in Christ that we indeed are sons, beloved sons and daughters of the father and that God is not going to let us go. And, and even when we let go, right, like in our own lives, when we struggle with doubt or temptation and we're like, I can't do this, I don't want to do this. Like sometimes there's been times in my life where I'm like wanting to walk away and say, I'm done. But God, I let go, but God doesn't let go of me. And, and, and in, in his providence and his care, he kind of redirects me and pulls me back in. I mean, this is the story of my life in many ways. And again, this is a very biblical 
idea. I mean, Jesus himself says to his disciples in John 10, um, my sheep hear my voice um, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, right? My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. I mean, that is about as clear as you can get a statement about perseverance of the saints, right? Like, so if you are in Jesus's sheepfold, if you are his sheep, right, nobody can come in and snatch you out of things, right? And so I, I think that this is a really, um, just a, again, pastorally speaking, it's a very powerful um, assurance that we have of our faith in Christ. One of the important things about our Reformed tradition um, we have a pretty strong emphasis on on discipline and discipling people. Um, now, I guess why is that important? If if somebody is sinning, um, you just said God's going to bring them back. So why do we have to do church discipline? Well, because God gives means of grace, right? Like, you know, Jesus Christ is, you know, God's means of, you know, like as the incarnate son with flesh and bones and blood. And I mean, God sent Jesus into the world who is a real human being to save sinners and to save us. And he gave us the church and he gave us the sacraments and he gave us, you know, uh, what we call the keys um, up to the church, which means that, you know, God has, has a specific methods and ways in which he saves um, the world, right? The preached word, sacraments, prayers, all these things are, are, you know, what the, the tools and the means by which God saves us. So that's why, you know, discipline is important because it's one of those aspects of how God is saving. But it's also really important here to understand that salvation, well, what's the end goal of salvation, right? Uh, again, it's not simply, well, I can go to heaven when I die, right? No, the end goal of salvation is glorification. And glorification is what, uh, you know, First John gets at. When he says that when he comes, when we see him, we will be like him. Um, this this sense that we will see God fully, like that's the end, right? So so to live in disobedience, to to not really take like the Christian life seriously, is actually not to actually understand at all what it's all about, right? Which is life with God, to see the Lord, to be like him. And he gives us these means of grace in the church and life in order to direct us to that end goal. Yeah. If I could just make one. Uh, so those of you who are uh, listening in on this, um, this episode and you're, you're not, you didn't grow up in the reformed tradition. Um, and, and some of these doctrines of grace uh, are kind of, you know, you struggle with them. I just want to say it's okay to wrestle with them. And, and my invitation to you is, is to be willing to wrestle deeply with the scriptures, um, to you know, and to to, um, to be challenged in your understanding, um, and not be afraid of of these doctrines of grace, and and not to feel like you have to be able to, you know, tie a nice bow and a ribbon and on these, and the, as if you understand them. And sometimes I'll challenge our congregation um, for those who you know don't have a problem who grew up and these are all like they heard from when they were little kids um, in the catechism class. If you don't struggle with these doctrines of grace, especially around election and predestination and 
if you're not struggling with these things, you're not really wrestling with them, right? And I think the the point I want to make is that there's a way that when you, these come up in scripture, um, there's a, there's a lot of different ways that they they're important. One is just to communicate the graciousness of grace of God's glory and salvation, but but also sometimes in the the hard edges of them is to confront us with the reality of God and that God is God and we are not, and you know. Who are we going to trust? Our own reason, our own understanding, or God's? So um, wrestle with them as a spiritual exercise to kind of draw near to the Lord. Um, and don't feel like it's a something you like. You have to just figure it out in one day. I mean, it takes sometimes years and a lifetime to kind of come. Um, and you're never going to fully understand it. And that's okay. But we welcome you anyway. Yes. Thank you. <laughs>